left off last week in the book of Luke. We're going through the first six verses. I went through verses 1 and 2, but let me read the entire part of that. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysantius, tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Okay, all of that is to give you the background of what's going on politically and religiously. That scenario, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level places, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What we were looking at here as we begin to look at this third chapter in Luke was the beginning of John's ministry. His ministry begins here. And I left off telling you last week at the end of verse 2, this is big, uh, not like Barney, it's big, it's really big, trying to convince Andy. This is, though, big, verse 2. <laughs> and we get right there and we jump into verse 3. After he lays that foundation, like Luke is wont to do, he gives us the history here, names these people. And then he says this, John, he went into the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The beginning of John's ministry, and this is what it's all about. Now, you need to understand what's being said here. The baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What's left out, of course, is the idea of uh, a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, a confession of sin and accepting him as a savior. It seems to say, like some false religions do, you need to be baptized to be saved. That's not what's being said. John had a different type of baptism that preceded the baptism that Jesus Christ would have when he came and began his ministry shortly after this. But God's word has come to bring salvation. And John is proclaiming that and speaking that. Actually, his ministry had begun three months before his birth. If you remember, I brought that up last week. The connection with Jesus Christ, recognition as Messiah, and the movement within the wombs of Elizabeth and Mary. John's testimony to the Messiah began even then. And if you need proof of that, you can go back to chapter one of Luke, particularly verses 14 and then 15 to 17. And then at the end of the chapter, 76 and 77, the ministry of one who is filled with the Holy Spirit. He has been alone in this barren country and he's had his prophetic personality developed, if you will. Not unlike Isaiah, uh, Elijah, when he got prepared to enter into a, 
time of prophetic ministry. This isn't uh, terribly unusual. It is terribly stringent. The hill country where he was was barren. It was not a great place to live, not any established cities. What he is, though, is near the Jordan. That's significant because that's where he's going to baptize sinners for the repentance of their sins. He's going to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And this was a new rite, R-I-T-E. Up to this point, baptism wasn't included in the religious history of Israel, except if you were a Gentile who wanted to convert to Judaism. Those people were baptized. That, and that was it. An Israelite wasn't, whatever he went through, perhaps bar mitzvah, as we discussed last week, considered to be part of the covenant family. But Gentiles who wanted to convert were baptized. That was it before this time. <laughs> what was probably uh, signified there was a baptism of the unclean to become the clean from Gentile to Jew. <laughs> they needed to profess, be circumcised, and be baptized in order to be accepted into that covenant community. John comes with a message of repentance and forgiveness. Lord willing, we'll get to that right after we deal with these last few verses in six, 1 through 6. They need repentance, but not that alone. It sounds like that, but it's not just that. This repentance had to be there. It wasn't just that you were dunked into the water or it was poured over you. For we read later in the book of Luke, chapter 13, unless you repent, now this was Jesus preaching, what, what will happen? You will all likewise perish. It wasn't just the water. There had to be repentance. That was the mark here of what, were, what John's message was all about. Repent, repent, repent. It is as if he is doing the work of an Old Testament prophet, which he is. He's an Old Testament prophet in the pages of the New Testament written down here. And now you're going to see the New Testament dawning with the birth of Jesus Christ. He's saying, repent. Why? Look at the Messiah who's bringing this salvation. He's preaching repentance. The Greek word means <laughs> dismissing or sending away. It is commonly applied to the releasing of water from a reservoir or releasing racehorses from the starting gate. Doing away with this, getting rid of it. Three decades of silence are ending here. Now we had the great time of several hundred years up to the New Testament, but now we had the picture in Luke 1 of the coming of the Messiah and the forerunner in John. But after that event with the angel coming to Zechariah and Elizabeth, there's been three decades now. John's come, he's been born, but he's been busy being prepared for this ministry. And now John is here to prepare the way for the uh, Messiah. Chat, uh, verse two in part B is uh, the main clause in this passage, if you will. We don't have to get into all the grammar. The word of God came to John. That's 
emphatic here. The word, what right did John have to stand up and proclaim this gospel? To pro- proclaim this uh, repentance that he is so adamant about doing. This, this is his prophetic mission right there. The word of God came to John. <clears throat> Leon Morris says it trivializes those seven men previously mentioned at the beginning of chapter three. It trivializes them. Nothing is more important in this passage than this. John has come with the word of God. And in verses four through six, he prepares the way. What is being quoted here in verses four through six? You great scholars, you can probably find it in your notes right there in your Bible. Pardon? The prophet Isaiah. Israel is returning from exile in Babylon when that was written, but it was written for this too. There was preparation being done for a king, a conquering king. And these were some of the preparations that were being done. John says the Messiah is coming. (coughs) Preparation needs to be made. And if you will, that was his ministry, making sure that people were prepared. This was the ultimate fulfillment here in the New Testament of that prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40, particularly verses three through five. (laughs) In the New Testament, this was before followers of Christ were called Christians. If you remember, that didn't take place till the book of Acts and it was almost a pejorative term. These were followers of Christ, Christ's way, the narrow way, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. They were being called in 3D, uh, 3B, he begins, John begins to address the problem here that the Jews were stumbling over. They were, took the Old Testament, trying to bring it and live it in the new and weren't aware of what John came to tell them. What, what he came to tell them was one is coming to forgive sins. He's proclaiming to them, know the Lord. And we go back again to the Old Testament. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Another Old Testament prophecy here, leading up, filling in the blanks, if you will, about this history of the coming Messiah. Repentance isn't a new doctrine here in Luke, just introduced in the New Testament. It's throughout the Old Testament. Can you think of any examples of that in your study, a reading of the Old Testament? Well, there's a great one in Psalm 51. What took place there? That's the great Psalm that David wrote about his sin. It was his confession, his cleansing, if you will. And he talks very very clearly, especially in the first two verses of Psalm 51, about this thing called repentance, sorrow for his sin, sorrow that went beyond anything perhaps that we have ever felt. And so this preparation needs to be made ushering in this time of repentance 
and the coming of the kingdom of the Messiah. What preparation is being made? We have the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Preparation here back in Isaiah, it was for, for returning uh, from exile and coming here and there need to be preparation made. Here there, we see the preparation for the Messiah who's coming. What's being done? Each valley shall be filled. We're gonna level this up. The valleys are gonna be filled. We're gonna go beyond that. Each mountain and hill shall be made low. Paving the way, we'll look at that further in the next few verses that we look at. The crooked shall be made straight. What? What is, what is crookedness? Well, it's evil or sin, you know. Uh, it's not by chance that we get the word describing a criminal as he's a crook, you know. He's walking a crooked way, not a straight way. Those had to be straightened. And the rough places shall be made level places. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What's going on here? Things are being cast aside. Sins are being dealt with. A smooth way is being made. John's telling us about this. It comes with repentance and then the Messiah. It's a tremendous thing that's going on. And that is how John begins his ministry. Well, I want to look now at the next seven verses beginning here, and we're going to look at John's message of repentance. Let me read this for you. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. You folks have nice houses. Do you use them for the Lord? You have relatively nice cars. Do you use them in the ministry of Koinonia or around your neighborhood or other places? You have a regular income. Do you share with those in need? I might be stepping on your toes. I'm trying to personify John the Baptist. He just points the finger at these people and says things like this. And he goes beyond that. I wouldn't do this. You brood of vipers. Wow. Uh, he doesn't get any awards from Dale Carnegie. 
didn't finish that course of how to win friends and influence people, would not have a television show, I would guess today, on any network. He came to tell them, you have problems, and, you, and not just problems, you have sin, and you need to repent. You brood of vipers. This is blunt, it's forceful, and thank God that we go to a church like this, it's uncompromising preaching. He's telling it like it is. Even in some quarters of our uh, denomination, folks are not doing this, sadly. We need to preach the unvarnished message and let, as they say in the vernacular, the chips fall where they may. John is blunt. He's direct. He's pointing out their sins. He's, what is he looking to do? What do you think he's looking to do? If he's not trying to win friends here, what's he doing? Showing them the need to repent. When you go out and evangelize, what you often have to do, first of all, is show a person they're a sinner before you can show them what they need to take care of that sin, being the Lord Jesus Christ. John is doing that. He's showing them. Look at, if you will, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. There were multitudes here. A lot of these people heard about what was going on. You got to go hear this guy. He has the answer to our need. And there's a ton of them. And they're from several walks of life that we're going to see here. What do we do? What's going on? What do I have to do? Well, he tells them, you've got to repent. They're like vipers. Do you know what vipers were? There's another place or two in the uh, scriptures that describe them. They're about a two foot long snake. They were very able to lie still. You look like a, a stick and you picked it up, you got bitten. If you remember in Acts 28, I think it is, Paul was out and he got bit and he shook the snake off and the Lord protected him and people proclaimed him a God. That was a viper. And that's how John describes these people. Man, uh, I never heard that gospel presentation in my lifetime. <laughs> There's a similar passage in Matthew chapter three. Let me read to you there some verses beginning in verse seven. In this particular instance, Matthew cites especially the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. Who's John the Baptist? He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Okay, you've been warned, you're here, you want a quick remedy. But he doesn't stop there. John says in verse eight, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from the stones to raise up children for Abraham even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He gives the example, John, here of these vipers. It's like a, a field, a grass field has been set on fire, which some people do to clear it of the uh, weeds and such, get it ready for another use. And they set that fire and you see the snakes just wriggling as fast as they can and perhaps other varmints to get away from the fire. That's the picture here. 
these brood of vipers, they're just struggling to get out of the way of the judgment that John is proclaiming here. He delivers his politically incorrect message to the highest rulers of this day in Israel, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, for instance. And he says what Ryle, J.C. Ryle discovers, how plainly John speaks to his hearers about hell and danger. There are far too many people today who don't. You know, we want to give a witness and perhaps we forget to bring these things up, even to our children. You know, there's a day of reckoning. There's a, a penalty to be faced. God says, if you will not repent and believe, you'll spend eternity in this place called hell. He gives warning and exhortation here in verses eight and nine. What is the warning he gives? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father and so on. Mark chapter nine, we read this. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. This is the judgment that John is talking about. You say all these things you want to, such as they're about to say one of them, that you have a pedigree, you should be all right. You have a genealogy that goes all the way back to Abraham, but that's not what is gonna save them. Hidden sins are being revealed here. That's what's talking about, I believe, with regard to the valley. Hidden sins are coming to light. The mountain of sinful pride is being broken down and leveled and the roads being made smooth. Obstacles to this way of salvation are being removed. That's what's going on here. And they're about to, uh, John is about to reject their religious ritual. Here again, we go back to the book of Isaiah. Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, they are rejected, Isaiah proclaims. Bear fruit. What does he say about this? This is their excuse. My father, our, our, we're children of Abraham. Well, flip this over to where we are today. What, what kind of excuses do you hear or have you ever made? You know, I've come to church all my life. My mother used to teach Sunday school. Uh, I should be okay, right? I should, everything will be all right. <laughs> but that's not what John says. No, that won't do anything. How many of you know Aaron Burr? early vice president of the United States who shot and killed Alexander Hamilton, right? He did a few other things too. Do you know that he was the grandson of Jonathan Edwards? Hello. You say your father's Abraham? So who are you before the Lord? Can you imagine? R.C. Sproul says this, if God could make Adam from dirt, he can make the children of Abraham from stones. You see how humble we ought to be. 
don't play the Abraham card, you know. Your Abraham card might look different. You know, we've been members here at Second. Our family goes back to uh, the 1800s. Uh, I have a relative who has a plaque here. You could do that. Or you could say a, a hundred other things. Uh, I've been baptized. I've done this. I've done that. We can come up with a, a lot of different scenarios. But right away, John cuts through that. Uh, he says, so what? So what? And the conclusion drawn from that in verse nine is, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What's John saying? What does fire signify quite often in the scriptures? Judgment, judgment. He's saying, look, this is how bad it is. This is how bad. The ax isn't just pruning the branches. It's laid here at the trunk, if you will. The tree, you are about to be cut down if you don't repent. When he says here, the trees, the plural, all of you, the implication is do not delay. Do not delay. Our brother and great friend Al Wills passed away recently. He had a great testimony, wonderful, godly man. But he was just recovering from knee surgery and all of a sudden he's taken by something else and dies in his home. And knee surgery went well, but it was his time. See, the ax is laid at the tree at the root. Now, now repent. You don't know how long you have. John is saying there's a settled indignation on the part of God. This started with Adam and Eve. On the day that you sin, you shall surely die. It's written. It is written. Ephesians, tell, Ephesians tells us that judgment is reserved for the future. It's coming. You say you've lived through some terrible things. Uh, I know my parents did. They lived through the Depression some other problems, World War II. Well, you think, I've already lived through all that, but it doesn't matter. You have not come face to face with the God of the universe who demands perfection. What do you do? That final manifestation is gonna come with the second coming of the Lord with regard to us. Look at their alarm in verse 10. What then shall we do? What then? What's the answer? They apparently believe John's message to a certain extent, his call to repentance. What should we do? How does he answer them? He gives them examples. Look at the three examples John gives them. A man who has two tunics is to share them. A tax collector is not to collect more than he should. Soldiers are not to extort money from people. What do those three examples have in common? Well, it's a problem that hasn't gone away in 2022. Greed. Every one of these have to do with a form of money. I've got two tunics, but I'm not going to give anybody. Uh, 
I can get away with collecting a few extra bucks for myself. And that was done regularly by these tax collectors. Or you're a soldier, you come into a situation and uh, you have this thing that we commonly call a shakedown. <laughs> it's basically extortion. Look, we're here now, Roman soldiers, we're in charge. If you want things to go well, you better open the purse. All of these things that's interesting have to do with money. It's a very real problem, a temptation that many of us face and deal with. You know, you can be tempted by this thing of greed uh, from both sides of the aisle because you don't have enough or because you have so much. Like someone asked John D. Rockefeller a long time ago, uh, when are you rich enough or when have you had enough? And he just says a little bit more, a little bit more. You can be tempted both sides. But this has to do with their love of money that's manifest in social injustice. The gospel at work is not just a social gospel, but it does yield results here showing that the fruit of repentance is that your heart's been changed. You're willing to give one of those tunics to somebody who needs it, a coat, a contribution to Miracle Hill or, or whatever. You're willing to stop stealing. Remember, if you read in Ephesians, it says, let him who stole steal no more, but rather let him labor so he can give to people. This is prominent in the New Testament. John's hitting every hammer that's sticking up here in this crowd. And then he says, you who are soldiers in your position here of authority, at least with a weapon in your hand, stop shaking people down. Well, do we have any examples of this elsewhere in the New Testament? Can you think of any? There you go, the nail on the head. Let me read from the same gospel, Luke in chapter 19. He entered Jericho, that is Jesus, and was passing through. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Well, that's, that's not surprising, is it? He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said in uh, the most uh, definite Selection of a sinner to be converted. This fits in with Calvinism right easily, doesn't it? He points up and he says to Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be with the guest of a man who is a sinner. Uh, don't ever come to our house. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, we'll be sinners there <laughs> that you're coming to be a guest of. Uh, it just won't work if that's what you're looking for. They saw it, they grumbled. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, Salvation has come to this house since he also, now isn't this nice, a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save 
the lost. What a fitting comparison that is to what we're looking at in Luke chapter three. Jesus calls this man with the call of irresistible grace and he comes. What happens? He knows that he has to make restitution if he's really a believer and he does that. It's apparent. Zacchaeus says, I, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it. He doesn't say dollar for dollar. He says fourfold. Now that's not written in stone that you have to do that. But you have to show fruits that are meet with repentance. They equal your repentance, the actions that you now live. And that's what happened with Zacchaeus. He repented of his personal sins. There was true contrition. You know how you are when you're a child. Uh, I don't want to get too personal, but I was this way. You know, you get caught by your mom and dad doing something. <laughs> you have a certain amount of, uh, it's not really contrition. You got that look on your face. I'm so sorry I did this. And what you're saying underneath is, man, I wish she hadn't caught me. You know, <laughs> how, how can I get away with this? I should have, I should have tried this. That's not what we're talking about. This is true contrition where people change genuine, deep sorrow for sin and the offense against God that it is. Now, these are very apparent ways. ways. How many other ways do you need to demonstrate your repentance? I'm, I'm not saying you, this is the only three things you should do or can do. The panoply of, of graces is great, great. Here's how Matthew Henry describes it. We are to live ordinary life in a transformed way. What does your regularly scheduled day look like? We are to live that in a transformed way. We're to demonstrate that we have come to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle, another place, said this, doing is the very life of repentance. It's not enough to just be <laughs> a child of Abraham. What do you do that shows you're a child of God? What? Any questions or comments? I don't know how to translate this to you. I don't know any of you that work for the IRS. So I won't bring that up. I don't know any of you that are in the military, but that's a noble profession. But these people were using it ignobly in extorting people. But how many of us in our day-to-day -day path have opportunities to do good to those who are in great need physically of a, a meal, some clothing or something? And you don't have to, be buddy-buddy with somebody like that. But what do you do with regard to, like I said, Miracle Hill or Salvation Army or something? What do you do to demonstrate this changed behavior? You know, you can live next door to just a, <laughs> uh, I don't know how to, a knucklehead, somebody that irritates you all the time in the neighborhood. You just, drives you up the wall and you're just hoping that for some reason they're gonna move. <laughs> And if you can get enough money, you'll take the first step. You'll move, get another house. Do you have somebody in that life, in your life like that? 
What can you do to fulfill what is said here? Demonstrate the fruits of repentance. Anybody have any questions or comments? One of the things you can do <laughs> is pray. I don't know how seriously you take that admonition. Sometimes you can tell on Wednesday night how seriously people take it. There's opportunity to pray 30 minutes before the evening service. There's opportunity to pray in different groups we get together with. Uh, if you had a neighbor like that, it'd probably drive you to prayer, wouldn't it? Uh, before you did something really stupid. Look, we need to demonstrate fruits of repentance. It ought to be demonstrated here with our attendance at the house of God. It ought to be demonstrated with our activities with regard to showing love in a tangible way, but also in intangible ways. Pray for people. Pray for people. Uh, Todd, can you dismiss us in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, every time we read it and hear it, preach it pricks us and adopt you, Father. Uh, we thank you for what you have done for us, um, what Jesus Christ has done for us. He's paved the way. He's made salvation. Uh, he's satisfied your wrath, Father. And I pray that we would um, not only be hearers of your word, we would be doers of your word as well. Be with us today and be with the uh, preaching uh, in the second service to come. In Christ's name. Amen. Amen.